For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about by your adoption to sonship, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait, wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The word of the Lord. Um, pray with me. We praise you, O Lord, for the waters and hills, the deserts and the valleys, the wilderness spaces, and for all living creatures. Forgive us for when we have not been good caretakers of the earth. Make us into people who practice, resur who practice resurrection by bringing dead things back to life and by making ugly things beautiful again. Amen. Um, it, it certainly has, has happened to, to all of us. You're at work or you're walking on the street. You're deep in thought about a project you're working on or the next project you're going to work on or the groceries that you have to pick up or the thing that you have to do at home. Um, or you're worried about something else. You're deep in thought. Your eyebrows are furrowed. You're focused on a fixed point deep in conversation with yourself. And then something happens. Someone breaks into that conversation and they say, hey, Lighten up. It's a beautiful day. Okay, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Who are you to tell me to, to brighten up? Imagine that. Someone breaks into that conversation and they tell you, have a better day. You don't know anything about my day. Um, but on the inside, you secretly want to throttle that person, right? Maybe you're not that violent um, and you want to, to choke them out. But the impact of that positivity at, at that moment um, seems like an invasion. Um, and you might actually be a positive, a positive person, but in this moment, in those thoughts and in that circumstance, you aren't interested in positivity, you're interested in, in something else. And so someone projecting that, positive, that positivity on you just kind of seems wrong. But positive thinking isn't necessarily bad. Certainly we attempt to reframe our mindset towards thinking in healthy, positive ways. A quick Google search um, shows thousands of, of articles, books, TED Talks, and YouTube tutorials that attempt to train us to think positively. And I think that there are really two basic types of, of people, the optimists and the pessimists. 
Or if you like, we have, I have a slide for you guys. If you like, there's the people that see the glass as half full um, and the people that see the glass as half empty. But which is it? Is the glass half empty or is it half full? Uh, we encounter a myriad of people on the spectrum, the optimists and the pessimists, that view this glass in a certain way. Um, I did you a favor and I collected some famous um, optimists and, uh, I, I want to say optimist prime, some optimists and pessimists um, to kind of show where people fall on, the, on this spectrum. Eeyore, the realistic optimist. Um, Eeyore says gloomily, it's snowing still, and one of his friends replies, well, so, so it is. And freezing. Is it? Yes, said Eeyore. However, he said, brightening up a little, we haven't had an earthquake lately. <laughs> or there's Charlie Brown, the defensive pessimist. Someone says to Charlie Brown, life is difficult, isn't it, Charlie Brown? And Charlie Brown says, why, yes, it is. But I've developed a new philosophy. I only dread one day at a time. <laughs> or my favorite, what about Garfield, the accidental optimist? Eat every meal as though it were your last. And so we ask this question, right? Is the glass half empty or is it half full? And of course, the answer to, the, um, to those questions place us into different categories, perspectives, extremes, the optimist and the pessimist. And how we answer that question reveals a lot about ourselves. But I'm a student of the internet, and so I couldn't just leave it at that, and so I had to look for something a little bit more clever. So I have another slide to show us everything in between um, half empty and half, half full. My favorite is the surrealist, where the, the water is cut straight down the middle, and I also like the nihilist, where there's just nothing there at all, right? But these are the choices that we have. Either it's on one side or it's on, it's on the other side. You can switch to the, ne the next slide. Um, and of course, this is simplistic, right? You're either one of these two things, or we're going to stick within these extremes um, for the sake of time and uh, for, your, um, for your happiness brevity. Um, but we can use this continuum. We're really trying to understand how we view, make sense of, and work through adversity and trouble in our life and our world. In a 2011 article in Psychology Today, Annie Paul writes that we're not born as optimists or pessimists. Instead, we use these frameworks um, and we switch them out to, to gauge and to make sense of, of the difficult situations we have. These are tools to frame how we deal with individual situations. But if we're able to extend this paradigm, so if we can interchange and use this idea of pessimism and optimism interchangeably, what would happen if we extend them to their logical conclusions? What's the dangerous side of the optimist? What's the dangerous side of the pessimist? I think the eternal optimist, which that's kind of where I fall in, I like to see the, the, sun, the sunshine, um, the logical conclusion of the eternal optimist, we might say that they're naive. Right? They just don't understand how the world works. Or if we look at the logical conclusion, or the logical set of um, the pessimists, we might call them a, a cynic. They're unwilling to trust the world around them. Um, and we know our world, right? Because we live in it. We are, are familiar with, um, with the circumstances of our world. And so often we demand more. We're still waiting for justice, right? We're still waiting for police reform. We're still waiting for further steps towards gender and, and racial equity. We might say, impeach him. We might say, give him a chance. 
we wait for that second or that third cup of coffee to get us through the day. We wait for family to reconcile. We wait for grief to run its course. We wait and we wait. We wait for adoptions to happen. We wait for it to pay off student loans. That's where we sit. We just simply wait. How do we respond to those things? And so we hustle. We wait, we work, and we wait, and we wait some more. And that's all the external stuff that we wait for, right? All the stuff that's outside of us. But what about the internal stuff that we're waiting for? What about um, finally waiting for that self-talk to silence? What about waiting for um, kicking that habit of looking at our phone when we're in the middle of conversations? Or what about the fact that we continually make New Year's resolutions after New Year's resolutions, hoping that this year is going to be the one that that is going to stick? But choose a side. When will justice come? Will you conquer your inner demons? Is the glass half empty or is it half full? And when you look at these troubles, are you the optimist or are you the pessimist? In our reading today, Paul is transitioning in his argument, in his broad view of of this book, this letter to the Romans. And he's arguing away from the injustices and brokenness in our worlds and ourselves towards something else. He is pivoting to something new. And I don't know where you are on on your journey today. Um, And I'm happy that if you have decided to share your spiritual journey with us, and if you haven't decided, please know that this is a safe place where you can, where you can explore that injustice. You can explore um, to find out what God is is doing. And I I pray that you you join us and to look at how God is putting the world back to rights. The last few Sundays, all through the month of, month of July, we've been moving through, through Romans in succession. Um, and I've never seen a more difficult passage to, to preach on than in, in Romans. And I think that's because so many people have said so many things about Romans. It's just kind of like, well, what do, I, what do I need to say? And even the book itself, it's like, well, what do I really need to preach about? Can't you just take it, right? Um, and so it's really difficult for the preacher to be able to, to do that. But here I am. Um, But this book towers. It towers as a mountain in Christian history um, in scope and magnitude because so many people have responded to it. So many people have have written about Romans. Um, And it seems to just be notorious. And perhaps the only books that really um, uh, compare might be the Gospel of John or Revelation and how people react react to this. But this is an overwhelming narrative. This is a letter written to these people. Paul has never met this church in Rome, and he's writing this big, broad groups of um, a large narrative describing the history of God's story from the very beginning. And as you read through this book, and even the sections that we've read through this summer, Paul seems to be going from topic to topic to topic as if he's so excited that everything he's ever, ever learned since that road on Damascus is spilling out of him, like a child waiting to tell you what what he received um, on Christmas from the day before. He's waiting to tell you what he's learned at school that day. And so he goes from topic to topic, idea to idea, and spilling out of him because he's so excited to tell this brand new group of Christians, this church, what he is learning, what he's learning. So if we look at the structure of the book, um, it fluctuates between large, big narrative ideas into small, personal, intimate reflections and back again into large, now what do we do kinds of questions. And Paul is keenly aware of who he's writing to. 
He's keenly aware of what he's trying to tell his audience. And the structure falls almost into a logical syllogism, into um, an argument um, that he's telling his audience. The world is broken in large, massive, devastating ways. It's also broken in small, personal, intimate ways. And he says, I don't need a better example than my own life to see that the world is broken. A few weeks ago, Josiah was, was hinting on that, of this chaos that exists within um, inside of ourselves. And he referenced Augustine. Augustine said that this sinfulness, this brokenness inside of us, is this chaos that we just need to be calm. And he asks, if there is this chaos, who's going to save me from it? Well, thank goodness for Jesus. Now what? Well, as we saw last week, it's the spirit that begins to change us, that begins to refine us, that, that moves us away, that calms us from this chaos. And we acknowledge, I'm not in control of my brokenness. And last week, Keith discussed, he had this great little, great little line where he says, there is a new source that we can draw from. This brokenness in this world, we don't draw from that. Instead, we draw from the gospel, we draw from the spirit, and that calms us. And so in verse 12, we have this, this therefore. Therefore, we have um, this something happens. A change occurs according to Paul. And it, this change happens in profound ways. We do understand how the world works as we live in it. There is brokenness all around us, inside of us, outside of us. And there's a choice, right? If this broken world is all there is, that's, and that's all we see, then we can draw from that. And we can think, okay, well... I mean, maybe, that's, maybe that is all there is. Maybe this world is broken. Maybe it is full of chaos. Maybe it is full of unnecessary burdens I can't throw off. Maybe it is full of unmet promises and, and broken dreams. But that's just kind of that cynical way to view that world, right? Or maybe, okay, the world is broken, but what if I can just escape from it? What if I can stick my head in the sand? And I can say it's not really there at all. I can create my own little fortress, my own little palace to push those things away and to be fine with it. But both of those reactions to this world seem inadequate. They just don't seem right. Is the glass half empty or is it half full? It seems, it seems inadequate. And so often we try to reclaim those broken pieces, right? We try and, and to put ourselves in that position where we can fix it ourselves. Um, and we place an overwhelming burden upon ourselves in trying to do that. We try and fix people. Um, people are, are broken. We're, we're broken. So often we think that other people are more broken than we are, right? Um, I teach high schoolers, and I never, have never seen more broken people um, than when I am with my, my high schoolers. And we try to fix them, right? Or people try to fix us, and they place um, overwhelming burdens on us, high standards that we're just not able to reach. Or our self-talk keeps cutting us down. We're just not good enough. We believe that lie. Or we try a do-it-yourself, pull, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps um, and try and work our way to, to hustle and to make our way um, to, to be better. Or if we are just active enough in our city, our community, our church, work, school, whatever it is, maybe that will be the thing that will make us good enough, make us worthwhile. And Paul names this. He names this throughout this entire book, the, the hustle and the work and the grind of trying to fix ourselves, to do all these things. And he says, we are enslaved to this. This is a type of slavery. A few weeks ago, I love that Josiah pointed this out, that when we hear that connotation of slavery, we think of 
our, our own historical sense of slavery, of, of you know, the American history of slavery. The slavery that Paul is writing to is you, you work hard enough in this Roman context, you work hard enough to get free. And if you are, are just good enough, then the person you're working for will pay those debts or those debts will be resolved. This is the slavery that he says. So if you continue to work in that, you exist in that slavery. But notice what Paul says in, in, in verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves. What God is doing inside of you isn't making you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. I like what the message says. Um, um, the resurrection life you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. Not a timid, grave-tending life. This text suggests something. Embrace the audacity of the gospel. Abandon that junk that we have, the, the, the burdens that weigh us down, because something new is happening. Something radical. Don't try to get into this family. You're already in it. You're adopted into it. And now you can say, Abba, you can say, Daddy. You can say, we are a part of this family. Don't try and work and hustle and do these things. You're already in this family. Tune your ears to a new song that is being played. Tune your ears to a joyful tune that is resounding through, through creation. Look for the adventure. Look for what it looks like to be a part of this family, to see with this new life that is coming forth. At the center of Christian life is a paradox, two contradictory truths that exist at the exact same time. In between 16, verse 16 and, and verse, verse 17, there seems to be a pause, um, a, a break that Paul takes, and he steps away from his thought in the previous section that's kind of connected with his argument and he transitions into, into something new. Paul, the, you know, this classic argument, right? Um, and he, he takes a step back, and he looks at this big picture. Now that we have this understanding of what God has, of how broken the world is um, since, you know, the foundations of, of the earth, what God has done through his people, what God has done through Jesus, the, the inner turmoil that we have and the gift that Jesus has given us. He steps away a little bit broader, and he says, in light of all of this suffering, in light of all of this evil, in light of all of this brokenness, what do we do? How do we respond to it? How do we deal with this evil in, in this world? And Paul's response is not an optimistic or pessimistic view uh, towards suffering. Instead, he identifies a third way. He says, no, it's not, you know, it's not this optimistic view. It's not this pessimistic view. Instead, it's this hopeful view. He says the gospel gives us a third way to respond to this world. Hope. And I love this. Look at the image that the author uses. Hope is like childbirth. Okay. Okay. Hope is like childbirth. It reminds me of um, Emily, one of Emily Dickinson's poems. Hope is a thing with feathers that sits on the perch of our, of our soul. But hope is like childbirth. And I've never given birth to a child. I never will give birth to a, a child. But um, the, the visceral image of that is, is breathtaking and, and seems a little like, 
Paul, what do you know about giving childbirth? Um, but here it is. Hope is like childbirth, right? Um, there's expectation and waiting, difficult times of, of pain and growth. And, but the pain is not just with us. The pain is within us, right? There are birth pains that are happening. There are moments of expectation. We wait and hope for new life to come outside of us. And Paul suggests that it's not just, you know, this, this pregnancy inside of this, this one, one woman or whatever. He says, no, creation is waiting for this new life to come out. Creation waits. It is pregnant on the precipice of something happening. And I love um, a word that, that shows up a couple times in this second section, that we eagerly await. And this word, and I like this because it's so much fun to say it in, in Greek. Um, the, this eagerly word, the word is um, epidekomai. It's not just a fun word to say. Um, we, the creation is eagerly awaiting for something. And, and the, the nuance of this is, is it's taking great care in perseverance and patience, taking great care and perseverance and patience, eagerly awaiting something to happen. I imagine it almost as if we're anxious, right? We're just kind of waiting for it. Um, we're waiting for that thing to come. Um, I love um, to, to think of Christmas presents when I was a kid, of that big present that I saw, and, and eagerly, eagerly waiting for that to happen, right? There was one time where my sister and I, we woke up way earlier than, um, than my, my parents, and we, we decided, without consulting with my parents, that we're going to open up a present. <laughs> and we, we found a present, we, we opened it up, and, and it was this, this checkers board. Um, instead of, you know, op- cutting out the tape, like, responsible kids, um, we just ripped the thing open. Um, I mean, just, just ripped the checkered board open. Um, we blade it out, we, we set it all up, um, and I beat her in that first checkers game, and she threw the board, and that was our last time we played games together. Um, <laughs> but that expectation of eagerly waiting, of, of ripping this thing open, of this thing spilling out into earth, this is what Paul is talking about. This is that hope that he's identifying with. This is the sense of, of freedom, this identity, this suffering, this evil, this brokenness. No longer is this, exists. Instead, we sit in this hope, looking for something new that's happening. Something new we can be a part of. And it's no wonder that at the great, um, in our great fairy tales, our great stories, our great movies, our tales of hope. In the deepest, darkest, dankest, yes, I said dankest moments is a glimmer of goodness on the horizon. Pick a story, any story you want that you respond to. A moment when a character is truly at their lowest, when their circumstances are at their darkest, when they are faced with insurmountable barriers, and it happens. Gandalf rides over the pass in Helm's Deep. Darth Vader saves his son and throws the emperor over the over the. The railing. And if I spoil those for you, it's been long enough time for you to. And lastly, Neo stops the bullets. That's a throwback to the Matrix. All three are on Amazon Prime right now. Neo stops those, stops those bullets. We wait for that moment to happen. We respond to this. We want those things to happen. There's something sitting in our souls looking for that hope. G.K. Chesterton wrote in his book, Orthodoxy, that fairy tales do not tell children dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Instead, fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. 
This is the reason why we respond to these stories. What do we do with suffering? Well, we have hope that God is taking care of that suffering. And that's the paradox of the Christian life. All this has already happened. It's already done, right? With the, with the work of, of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, all this has already happened. Also, none of it has happened yet. Also, all of it is happening right now. And for those Whovians out there, it's kind of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. It's all happening right now. It's not happening, and it's happening in the future and in the past. And there are moments when we can latch on to that hope. There are moments when we can find those things. I like to think of this as um, a, a lighthouse on a cliff. We can experience those senses of, uh, of loneliness in the dark, right? Where we feel, we feel alone. That self-talk comes again. We're unable to deal with our, our coworker, and we're in this darkness. And every once in a while, we can find this glimmer of light that passes. This sense of hope that we're drawn to. And we, we can just change our course and move towards that light. We know that there's going to be safety. These glimmers of light, these glimmers of, of hope that make our way through the darkness. One theologian points out that we already have language to describe this thing. We already have language to talk about these moments when we can find those pieces, those pieces of hope. And, and we name them as those heaven-touching earth moments, that moment when those longings we experience collide um, with our reality, and we know that something is afoot. We know that something is, is happening. And surprisingly, hope that, um, hope that changes what we wait for. This is what hope does inside of us. It changes us. It enlarges us, right? And I like that image, especially in thinking of, of hope as like, a, uh, as like childbirth. It enlarges us. It makes us ready, pregnant with possibility, right? It enlarges our expectation, not only of what God can do, what we can do. It enlarges the possibility that there's, there's, more, to, there's more to our world. It enlarges us and it gets us ready for what God is doing. And that's why we tell these stories, because it, it brings us to those moments of yeah, something else is, is happening. Um, and what does this new life look like? If we get to this, this moment, we follow Paul's, Paul's logic, we follow his argument to this moment of hope where he's sitting on the edge of his seat waiting for this thing to happen, what does this look like? Well, Paul is not creating this thing himself. Instead, he's drawing from a tradition that he's already a part of. He's drawing a, a tradition that, um, that is seen woven throughout the Old Testament of, of God working inside of his world and taking all of this chaos and bringing it to peace. Scattered throughout, throughout the Bible, God is responding to his people and, and he's bringing them from slavery into freedom, constantly from slavery into freedom. Peace stretching throughout creation, war subsiding. And in, in Isaiah, the prophet casts an image of this, where, where swords are being hammered into plowshares, spears are being crafted um, into, into pruning hooks. God schemes to put the world back to rights. He schemes to allow peace to enter into this present world. And this word for this, that echoes throughout Scripture, is shalom, this peace that spreads throughout this world. We wait for it. We hope for it. We're almost on, on our, our tippy toes, waiting for that thing to happen, waiting for it to see just on the horizon. Um, last summer, I, I, 
I read the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time, and I know that that's a very Christianese thing to say, right? Chronicles of Narnia. But I read it for the first time all the way through. And one thing I noticed as I was reading it, and this is why I think it's so beloved, is because in every single book, every single book, you're waiting for one character to show up. You're waiting for this lion, Aslan, to show up. And it's at times where you know, you're, you're reading three-fourths of the book and the dang, dang cat hasn't shown up already. You're like, come on, Lewis, let's get to it. And finally he shows up. Finally, and everything seems to be fine. Everything seems to come together. It's dangerous still. There's still present realities and present dangers that you need, but you know that there is this hope that happens. Um, I was reading one, one of the books um, last, last summer, um, and right around the time I was, I was reading, I think it was Prince Caspian, um, I was reading and I, I got a, a text message from one of my coworkers at, at my school. Um, and I found out, and this was a, a week after graduation, I found out that one of my students had died in a car accident. Um, this, this life that had so much potential, um, had a future ahead of him, a horizon ahead of him, no longer had that. And I, I remember kind of stopping, trying to find out information, all, all that, not, I could do nothing, right? There's nothing that I could do. I, I just was sitting at my house alone reading this book, and I was waiting for Aslan to show up with this mind that this student that I had had passed away thinking about all those, all those memories, all those thoughts, those laughs, those joys that I had, the lessons that he learned from the things that we did. And there is this moment in, in waiting for this lion to show up, and then he did. And the first thing that he says to the character is, take courage, dear heart. Take courage. Take heart, my heart. Take it. Let it be with you. This is this image that Paul is writing. Although we have suffering in our world, we experience it. There's brokenness in our world. Take heart. God is doing something. He's active. He's scheming behind all, of, behind all the scenes, waiting. And creation is an expectation for it. The Christian life is about being a part of that world that is breaking through. To be energized, to be encouraged, into life as God is, is breaking through the world. And, and every week, except for this week, so most weeks, we take communion as an act of remembering what God is doing. Remembering that single moment when it happened, that God entered into the world. He became the Word incarnate, gave His life, was, died, was resurrected, and we find new life. And so we take this communion, we take this cup, as an act of participating with that good news, as a single moment of God actually breaking through the world and pulling it back together. N.T. Wright writes in response to why we take this. He says, let us not rob ourselves of the hope that comes forward from God's future to sustain us in the present. God's new world has begun. If we don't see it breaking into the present world, we are denying the energizing foundation of Christian life. Would we take that take that communion, we are placing ourselves in that hope and, and that expectation of what God is doing. And so we wait. Um, we, we wait not for the, the cynical optimists and, and their breakdown of the world that the corrupt, um, the constant corruption, the scandal, the, the power will overwhelm and overrun us. Instead, hope tells us 
that the powerful and, and the unscrupulous do not have the last word. And we do not wait for that naive optimist who fails to see what lies right in front of their, right in front of their eyes and aim for that escapism. And instead, we say, no, there's, there's work to be done right now. There's things we can do now to bring a part of that world. Instead, there's a third way. Not what the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. Instead, what this hope says is, is it filled with living water? Can I draw from it? Can I be quenched from that thirst? And so we'll end with this. From one of my favorite authors, Cornel West, um, we cannot be pessimists. I cannot be an optimist. But I am a prisoner of hope. Pray with me. Eternal God, we eagerly await the fullness of your kingdom. We long for every tear to be dry. We groan for the day when we no longer struggle against the flesh. Let the sure hope of everlasting life give us courage to face the trials of this life. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.